Alright, today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 6, so if you have your Bible, that's the handout. But um, I figured this would be a good spot in our study of Revelation to pause and take some questions that people might have that we maybe we didn't cover them clear enough for you, or maybe you've got a different view on something like that. So I sent out an email to request some questions that people might have. I got some responses, and I'll do those. And then if you didn't send me questions in the email, and you'd like to ask one now, we can do that. And I'm really only going to answer questions that deal with the first five chapters, because anything after that we'll deal with later on. And so I can't remember off the top of my head how many questions there were, but hopefully I'll get them all. So the first one was this. And this is from two different people. They said, in the class when you covered the 24 elders, who did you say those folks were? Let me pause and give some advice. You don't have to do this. This is just my advice. I know you've got the handout. You also have your Bible. Just my advice. You probably should bring a pencil and write in your Bible, in pencil. The reason for in pencil is because you might read this book later and think something else, and then it wouldn't ruin your Bible. You can scratch it out. But as we go through the different symbols, if we say 24 elders is this, and you agree with that, write in your Bible. The next time you're reading Revelation, you won't have to have this class memorized. You can say, oh, yeah, that was this. Or if you're reading through and you say, well, we said the horse represented this, this horse just write it out to the side. So I know you've got the handout, and if you want to do that, that's fine. But it probably would be helpful for the longevity of you reading Revelation to make some notes in the Bible you regularly study from so that when you're going through next time, you don't have to have all this memorized. You can just figure it out from the notes there. But all right, here, goes, here are the questions. Number one, who are the 24 elders? And we have several different options. One view is that they represent a special angelic host. Some people believe that's who the 24 elders are. Option number two, the 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And I'm not against that view. I think it's a possibility. But I think the strongest view and the one that I told us that I thought it was when we discussed it in class was they represent the church. 12, the number that deals with people of God, intensified by 2 being 24. And the reason for that is because the things that are said about the 24 elders are only said about Christians. They wear crowns. They're robed in white. They're around the throne. They've overcome. So those things are never said about angels. Nowhere in the Bible do we read of angels wearing crowns or anything like that. And so the conclusion was that the 24 elders are representative of the church, the people of God. All right, second question. There was a question about... Revelation chapter 5, and we can turn to this one. We'll be in chapter 6. Revelation 5 and about the bowls of incense in Revelation 5. And where is that in Revelation 5? I thought it was verse 8, but I don't think it is. Yeah, it is. Revelation 5, 8. He took the scroll, that's Jesus, the Lamb, and the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And the question was, is this still true about the people of God today? Like, are our prayers still coming up before God as incense? And I would say, yes, we've got no reason to think otherwise. David prayed in the Psalms, let my prayer be counted to you as the evening sacrifice. Paul said in Philippians 4, 15 through 17, that the gift that came to him from the Philippians when he was in Macedonia, Philippians 4, 15 through 17, went up as a sweet aroma to God. And that idea of an incense going up or something like that, it just means, it's Old Testament terminology that means it's coming to God's presence and he accepts it. And that's true about our prayers today. And so this terminology, though speaking specifically about the seven churches and what they were going through, has been true for God's people, I think, just as far back as you can, as you can think. All right, third question that I received dealt with 
the um, seven spirits. That's Revelation 5 and verse 7. It says, oh, verse 6, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, which are sent out into all the earth. And so the question was, are these seven spirits literal or are they figurative? If you go back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 4, there are the seven spirits of God. And when we introduced it, we talked about that being representative of the Holy Spirit. The number seven in the book of Revelation is a number that deals with completeness. And so the seven spirits of God, God doesn't have seven spirits. Ephesians 4 and verse 4, there's how many spirits? One spirit. And here, the book of Revelation is using that number seven symbolically to refer to the totality and completion of God's spirit. I think that's three. The fourth question was about the persecution of the church. And I almost say this for the future, and we'll touch on it later. But the question was, when did the persecution that the Christians suffered under the reign of Domitian come to an end? Like, if the book is about the persecution Christians were undergoing in the first century, when was that over? And um, what, what do we know about that? A few brief things. One, the rest of the book of Revelation will help us out. Number two, Domitian was assassinated by his court officials in AD 96. And then there was a time of peace for the church, but then persecution swung back up, and the church really enjoyed a long measure of peace in 313, when the Edict of Milan was signed and um, Constantine declared Christianity the state religion and had the Romans pull back from persecuting the church. And so it's a trick question, when did the persecution end? Well, under Domitian, it ended in AD 96, shortly after this book would have been composed, as he was assassinated, and there were several pockets of peace that the church enjoyed in the years following the book of Revelation. But in a grand scale, persecution ceased for the church for a long period of time after that edict was signed by Constantine in 313. But throughout the early centuries, and there's an article from Everett Ferguson. He was New Testament scholar, member of the church, was at Abilene for a long time. He talks about persecution in the early church. If that interests you, I can send you that article or something like that. I think that's all the questions that I have by email. Does anybody have a question now on Revelation that you didn't email on the first five chapters? Going once. Going twice. All right, let's go to chapter 6 before you ask me something I don't know. All right. Revelation 6 is a turning point in the book because we're going to deal with some highly symbolic language. Revelation 6, 1 through 17. And my slide's on point. Yeah, they are. Okay. The destruction and the devastation that will be caused by the opening of the seven seals. Chapter 5 ends with there being a lamb that could do what? What was the lamb supposed to do that John was worried no one could do initially? Open the seals. Well, one appears, Revelation 5 9 says he's worthy to open the seals because he was slain and he's made us a, key, a kingdom of priests to our God and he's redeemed people from all nations in the earth. And so he's going to open the seal and it's going to be able to tell us about some of the hardship that's going to come on Rome as a result of persecuting God's people. Now, the things that we're going to read about in Revelation 6 with these horses going out and the devastation they caused is dealing with people in the first century. And I think we made that point a lot in this class that we need to keep the book in its context. But I kind of want to make a different point about it right now, and that is this. The things that you find in Revelation 6, all of the devastation that we'll read about, deals primarily with things going on in the first century. But I still think, and by the way, I think this is true for the whole book, there's still application for God's people in every age. So don't get in the mindset of thinking, Hiram said, hey, the book of Revelation, most of it took place in the first century. It has no bearing on our lives today. It does. And I think you'll see that as we get into chapter 6 specifically. John's going to see these seals open. Some horses come out. 
and then we'll see the results of what those horses what those horses bring about. All right, before we do that though, let's get a key to John's coloring book. There are gonna be four horses with four different colors. And so if we know what these colors mean, it's gonna help us out. I know you know your colors, but this is gonna help you in a good way. Now here's where I would be writing in my Bible, if I were you, I'm not you. But if I were you, I would be writing these colors down so that I wouldn't get confused, not just for the horses. I believe these colors carry throughout the book of Revelation, not the whole New Testament. But under this apocalyptic genre, these horses deal with, these colors, excuse me, are going to help us interpret some things throughout. Okay, so let's start. The first one that John, the first color we're going to look at is white. What does white mean in the book of Revelation? What do you think it means? Purity. Purity. I would think that too, but that's not what white means in Revelation, necessarily. White in the book of Revelation deals more with conquest and victory. Here are the passages. Go to Revelation 1.14. That's where Jesus' head, it says he has white hair like what? White hair like wool, right? And so we say, well, that's representative of purity. But that won't go throughout the rest of the book. This word, Lucas, throughout the book of Revelation is used 16 times. And it always means to be a conqueror, a victor, somebody who's overcome. Let me show you the verses. Revelation 3, 4, and 5. Notice these. Jesus says to the church in Sardis, he says, you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in what? White, for they are worthy. Notice the next verse. The one who conquers, that's what white means in Revelation, to conquer, to be a winner. The one who conquers will walk in white, uh, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. Okay, another one. Revelation 4, verse 4, the 24 elders are around the throne, and they're clothed in what color garments? In white. And that would make sense because I told you I think the 24 elders represent the church. That's what Jesus promised the church at Sardis. That's what these folks enjoy. One more reference on this. Revelation 7, 9. Revelation 7, 9. Jeremy, can you read that for us? Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. All right, so they're clothed in white, and it's all about the fact that they've overcome. In fact, the verses following that with the song they sing is going to deal with conquering and overcoming through the Lamb. When you see white in the book of Revelation, it's not about purity. White in the New Testament typically means that, and I'm not saying that's got nothing to do with it in Revelation, but primarily it deals with triumph, you've overcome, and that sort of thing. Second color is red. What does red mean in the book of Revelation? What do you think? Conflict or blood. Yes, conflict or blood. And the word that appears in the book of Revelation for red, it only appears twice. It's in Revelation chapter 6, which we'll see. And then there's a dragon in the book of Revelation, chapter 12 and verse 3. He's called the what color dragon? The red dragon. And he brings death, decay, destruction, and all of that. So when you see red in the book of Revelation, it normally means blood or warfare or something along those lines. The next color is black, and black would mean what? Death, or we would think that, but that's not what black means in Revelation. Sorry. Somebody's like, I'm done guessing colors with higher. I thought I had white. I was quiet on red. I came out strong with black. Death is not death. All right. Black in the book of Revelation means famine or scarcity. The word is used twice. Revelation 6, 5 and Revelation 6, 12 may loss. And it means scarcity or not having enough. John will use it in that context. And it's going to deal with produce. So who's persecuting the Christians? The empire of Rome. And there's going to be a black plague, so to speak, that sweeps across Rome. And where God's going to hit them is in their products, in their produce, in their agricultural setting. And black represents 
represents that idea. It appears twice in Revelation. And then the last one is the color pale. I think the New American Standard has in Revelation 6 for this word ashen or something like that. It means kind of like sickly pale or something along those lines. The Greek word means greenish or kind of yellowish. English translations go with pale, which is fine. What does that mean? I'll give you a hint. Starts with D, ends with F. Death. That's death. So in the book of Revelation, pale means death, okay? Um, it appears three times. Revelation 6, 8, Revelation 8, 7, and 9, 4. Sometimes it's just translated as green. It just depends. So here's the key to the coloring book, and it's going to help you when we start reading Revelation 6. When these horses come out, you see a white horse. What does that mean? Conquer. And you're not going to have to take my word for it. The context is going to bear this out. When you see a red horse come out and it's rider, what is that going to symbolize? Conflict, bloodshed. That's what you should be expecting. When you see black, and John will explain himself. So you won't have to wonder, how would I ever have figured that out? If you read the book of Revelation, John just explains it. He will tell you, here's what these colors represent, and that will carry out throughout the book. All right, let's start Revelation 6. I'll read verses 1 and 2 to begin. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. All right, John looked, he saw the lamb, the lamb had the book in his hand, you remember he went to the one on the throne in chapter 5, he went to God, he got the lamb, he got the book, and he's about to open it up. Has anybody in here ever taken a test in school, or maybe for driving or some sort, and everybody in the class gets a test passed out, and the instructor says something along these lines, don't break the seal until what? on the test until you're told to do so. What is the breaking on of a seal when you're given a test signify? What does that mean? It's time to start and time to begin. Who breaks the seal? The first seal in Revelation 6.1. The lamb who is Jesus. It says several things about Jesus. The seals include God's plans to deal with Roman persecution. And Jesus is the one that's going to disclose those plans. He's the only one that can get the ball rolling, so to speak. But here's the other thing. When Jesus rose from the dead, Matthew 28, 18, he said how much authority did he have in heaven and in earth? All. Jesus gets the ball rolling when he wants to. Nothing prompts him. Nobody moves him into action. Nothing twists his arm. The lamb will break the seals when he gets ready. He's the one that actually gets things rolling and gets the ball started. One of the living creatures, how many living creatures did we have again? Four. Four horses, four living creatures. Each of them will come out one by one until a horse to come out. So this come is, in verse 1, Revelation 6, 1, one of the four living creatures said with a loud voice, come or go. He's talking to the rider on this white horse. He's saying, all right, it's your turn to go out and do what God wants you to do. These horses and their riders symbolize plagues that God's pouring out on the world or the Roman Empire at that time because they're persecuting his people. So one by one they come out, and they're supposed to do something. They have a job. John saw a rider on a horse. Look at Revelation 6, 2. And what color is the horse? White, which means what? What was that? Conquest. Okay, so what should we expect to see in this entire section? What's going on here? Revelation 6, 1 and 2. What's the first horse going to do in its rider? Conquer. Conquer who? This is important because you start reading this stuff and you're like, ooh, I hope that didn't happen in my lifetime. Well, first of all, we've got a first century context. But second of all, who are these plagues and who is this devastation designed to attack? The Romans or in future generations where this applies, God's who? 
enemies. If you're not an enemy of God, this is the best news in the world for you. Crack the seals, Jesus. Bring it on. Don't be afraid. All right. Hold your hand in Revelation, and we do have to do this quickly. Go back to Zechariah, because all of this horse imagery goes back to Zechariah and two passages where he talked about a similar thing. Now, in Zechariah, the horses have a different focus, but it's the background for these horses coming out in Revelation. Zechariah 1, let's get somebody who hasn't read to read nice and loud. Zechariah 1, 8 through 11. Who wants to do that for us? I could assign somebody. I guess. I saw one eye that hold a man riding on a red horse that stood among the myrtle trees in the hollow. And behind him were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Then I said, My Lord, what are these? So the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. And the man who stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are the ones whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they answered the angel of the Lord who stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro, fro, fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth is resting quietly. All right, thanks, Tim. So in Zechariah, I love when the Bible does this, especially in books like Revelation and Zechariah, where it's challenging. You're like, well, what does this represent? Zechariah tells you, or Zechariah is told. The horses in Zechariah, and there's another passage. We won't read it for time's sake, but it's Zechariah 6, 1 through 8. In Zechariah, the horses do what to the earth? Starts with a P, she read it. It's about they do what in the earth? At the end of verse 10, patrol the earth. So what does that mean? They go throughout the earth in Zechariah's day and check on things. The horses in Revelation, there's a similarity, but they're not the same. The horses in Revelation bring devastation on the earth. So in Zechariah, they patrol the earth, but in Revelation, they bring devastation on the earth. In the background for John, remember we said at the beginning of this class, the thing we need to know best to interpret the book of Revelation is to have a good knowledge of the what? If you know the Old Testament, John just plugs in God's greatest hits and press play. And these things just start coming back up. Oh, yeah, the four horsemen. Now, I remember that. That was in the days of Zechariah. That's what John's doing. All right, so the first horse, Revelation 6, you can go back there. This rider comes out, and he comes out to conquer and to conquer. What does the rider have in his hand? A bow and a crown. Now, there's some discrepancy about who this rider is. Who do you think it is? He has a bow and a crown. Who is it? Somebody's like, I'm not playing this game with you, Hiram. I'm not anything. Listen, some people think it's Jesus. All right, so there are two passages where Jesus, well, there's one passage where Jesus is definitely on a horse, and it's Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I don't believe this is Jesus here, though, and here are the reasons why, and I think there's some blanks for you to fill these in. First of all, Revelation 19, 11 through 16, where Jesus is clearly the person because it says he's king of kings and lord of lords. There's a different word for crown used than the one that's used here. Second of all, this rider has a bow, but in Revelation 19, 15, Jesus will have a sword. Third, it's kind of awkward that Jesus opens the seal and then jumps into the picture book and becomes one of the riders. That's kind of strange. I don't think it's him. And then fourth and finally, there are going to be three other horses. If Jesus is on this horse, it kind of parallels him with the other riders, and Jesus is in a class all by himself. And so I wouldn't say this is Jesus. Revelation 19, there will be a warrior that comes out on a horse. Revelation 19, 11 through 16, that's Jesus. This is not. So who is it? I think our best guess is it's just an enemy that God's going to use against Rome to conquer them. And the people that fit this bill the most are a group of people known as the Parthians in first century <coughs> times. Old Testament times, they're the Persians. 
if you just Google this, you just Google the Parthians, you're going to get pictures like this. They were known for their ability to ride on horses and to shoot backwards with the bow and arrow and to kill the adversaries as they rode off. But there's more behind this. Here's the other thing. The Romans would have been shaken in their boots because the Parthians had defeated them twice in history before. They defeated them in 55 B.C. and 62 A.D., and they were known for their white horses. It was one of the sacred colors of the Parthians, and every Parthian army had a white horse. God says, Rome, you persecute my people. I've got somebody for you. Who are they? The Parthians. And you've got history with them. They've defeated you before. They come out with bowls, and they come to conquer. All right, so horse number one is about God doing that and what God's going to do through them. And don't be surprised that God does this. Throughout the Bible, God does use foreign nations to do his will. God can use people like the Assyrians in Isaiah 10. In verse 5, he calls Assyria the rod of his anger. God can use a foreign nation to accomplish his will and discipline people that are against him. Habakkuk chapter 1 has the same idea. So the first horse comes out to conquer and to defeat, and I believe it's the Parthians used by God to intimidate Rome and get them to see that trouble's coming their way. All right, any questions on horse number one, the white horse and his rider? All right, press on. Number two, Revelation 6, verse 3 and verse 4. He opened the second seal, and I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword, okay? Second one comes out, and it's his responsibility to take peace from the earth. The red horse, what does red mean in the book of Revelation? Blood or bloodshed, war, combat, and that's what you should expect to see. This person comes out to bring trouble on the earth. Look at the text again, though. Verse 4, it says, He was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should do what to each other? Slay one another. What does that mean? What's happening inside, internally, in the Roman Empire? What's going to happen with them? They'll start killing each other. If the first horse represented issues coming to Rome from the outside, this horse says there's going to be internal conflict from within. The Romans knew what this was about. In AD 68 or 69, so some 30 years before John wrote this book, four emperors were gone in back-to-back succession in Rome. They knew about internal conflict and what could happen to them. And John's saying, God's going to have you turn it on yourselves because of your persecution of my people. Go to Matthew 24. Hold your hand in Revelation and go to Matthew 24 and notice verse 9 down through verse 12. Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, and you'll be put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I cite those verses simply to say, when times get tough, people tend to turn on one another. And that's what John is saying is going to happen in the days when Rome has issues because they begin to turn on one another and persecute each other. There's some Old Testament precedent for this. God making nations turn on themselves. And I'll just read one of them. Go to Isaiah 19. Or somebody will read one. Who wants to read Isaiah 19 and verse 2? Just one verse. Isaiah 19 and verse 2. And I will stir up Egyptians against Egyptians, and they will fight each against another, and each against his neighbor's city, and against city, kingdom against kingdom. All right, there you go. So the oracles of the nations in this section of Isaiah, Isaiah 19, 2, God says, Egyptians will turn on Egyptians. 
You know the story in the Old Testament when God's people don't have to lift a finger because there's this cry and the story of Gideon and they begin to turn on each other, the Midianites, and they destroy each other. Rome's going to have the same problem. So Revelation 2 and 3, God saying to the churches, hey, you've got to repent, you've got to get your act together. But what are we going to do about all this persecution we're facing, all the hardship that's ours? God's going to take care of that. He's got the Parthians in his back pocket. They'll deal with Rome. They ride horses and they shoot bows. But also in Rome, there'll be internal conflict. By the way, how does Domitian die in AD 96? He's assassinated by his own court officials. God's saying, I've got 4 through 22. You focus on chapters 2 and 3. Live the right way. Be the right kind of people. I'll take care of the adversary. All right. What did Jesus teach his disciples about suffering? And what does this tell us with this whole idea of bloodshed? Who's going to suffer at the hand of these horses and their riders that come out? Who's going to be the one suffering? Revelation 6, 3, and 4. Who is this about? Who's going to be the one to suffer? The Romans, yes. But would the Christians suffer at all as a result of any of that? Yeah, they would. They still had to live in the Roman Empire. There would be residual effects that Christians would face because of things going on in Rome. What did Jesus teach his disciples about suffering? Can you think of anything Jesus said about suffering to his disciples? Count it as gain. What was that? Count it as gain. Count it as gain, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Right, when you suffer, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Great is your reward in heaven. If you're persecuted for my sake, anything else Jesus said to his disciples about suffering? It won't be long, Kevin. Not specifically suffering, but everything. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful no matter what. Matthew 10, 22, Jesus says, you'll be hated by all men for my name's sake. The one that endures to the end will be saved. Don't give up. But what about John 16, 33? In the world, you will have what? Tribulation. That's a guarantee from Jesus. Jesus never said, follow me, nothing ever will ever happen to you. He said, if you follow me in the world, you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. Why? He's overcome the world. The internal conflict that would result as far as the Romans hurting themselves, it's going to affect Christians, but still, they can overcome and be faithful no matter what because Jesus is going to protect them. Here's another question, and this is going to apply really to all the horses, but I figured now would be a good time to ask it. What should we do with the horses today? Some people read, I've got a book in my library, it's called The Four Views of Revelation. And you can pick just about any passage and they'll tell you the four different views that people take as they approach the book. And you wouldn't be, you wouldn't, this isn't going to surprise you, that some people get to Revelation chapter 6 and COVID comes out and they're like, that's the red horse. Well, what do we do with the horses? Anything happens. Can you imagine people that live through the different plagues of time and history and reading Revelation and thinking, surely that's about what? This time right now. There's not been a darker time than this. Think about people that lived during the Great Depression. And when you get to the black horse and there's this scarcity and famine, people would naturally say, that has to be about my time. The problem is everybody thinks that about their time. And so here's the question for us. What do we do with the horses? It happened in the first century. How do we apply this today? Is this still true today? When there's internal conflict and bloodshed, should we identify that as it happens in our world with this red horse? When there's nations being conquered and others that seem like they're sent out to conquer, should we say, looks like the white horse and his rider to me? Should we take a totally hands-off approach? What should be our approach to trying to understand suffering in our world today, especially with the red horse, and how this fits in context of the book of Revelation? What do we think? This is not a trick question, by the way. The, the particulars change, but the general circumstances or principles are going to always apply. Okay. Yeah, so the the circumstances, well, what did you say? Say that again. 
I said the circumstances are going to always change from century to century, situation to situation. But these same general principles of what God's doing, Christ is doing, is always the same. And what the world is doing is always the same. And our response is. I think that's right. Ecclesiastes talks about this in chapters 1, chapter 1, 9 through 11. Solomon says, that which has been is that which will be. That's what's been done. It's been done. There's nothing new under the sun. There's a constancy that runs throughout our world. But here's another question, piggybacking off of what Neil just said. Okay, so particulars change, principles always the same. Is it right? And when these things happen, can we or should we say, boom, this came from God? Why or why not? Can we say with certainty, this set of events, this is from God to send us a signal? I mean, people struggle with this. Things happen in our world, catastrophes, and even personally in our own lives. And people are wondering, does God communicate to us through these kinds of plagues and these types of natural events? Is it just, hey, life's happening, we're under the sun, rock on? I mean, how do you know? And what do you do? Russell? You had your hand up before that question. Russell might not be answering that question, but you think about the question. I may be way off base, but God uses um, different ways to refine us. And if you, when you refine gold, you uh, put it under pressure or under heat, and separating the wheat from the chaff. Uh, maybe that's what God's doing. I don't. I don't know. God through time uses different things to find out. Our faith will endure or strengthen our faith. And yeah, I think that's right. Um, well, I'll say this. Go ahead, David. I think um, the problem comes when he becomes obsessed with, hey, you know, how do we match this event to this uh, apocalyptic imagery? Is that right? Is that wrong? And I think um, the way to alleviate that is not to be so bogged down by forces necessarily. Uh, but focusing on the important part, which is that Jesus is the one who is initiating all of this, and he is the one who is in control. We get so interested. I mean, it is fascinating to read about the forces and all the things that it represents, but for Christians, for followers of Jesus, the common denominator should be, hey, he's the one who is opening his seals. And yeah. it seems like he is, and God is the one who is always in so perhaps um, a better way to go about it is to focus on that rather than the victory that we have in Jesus rather than, oh, it's COVID and the Red Bulls or it's, you know, it's what the, you know, stuff yeah. like that. I think that's right, and it goes along with what Neil said. The idea is Christians win in the end. Don't get hung up on the details. I'm going to do one more thing, and we'll go on because this happens. There was a televangelist when the hurricanes came through Katrina, and there were people when the towers got struck in 9-11 televangelist came on TV and he said, well, God sent in a punishment on New Orleans because of all of the wickedness and debauchery that's going on there and has gone on there. And this is a judgment from God. So as Christians, yes, we win, we have the victory. But as people in the world, if anybody ever says, I want to study the Bible with you and they're just general, you know where they normally want to start? Book Re Forget the first 65. I want to know about Revelation. <laughs> Tell me everything. This is where they start. What do you say to somebody that says that, hey, tornadoes come through hurricanes, Hurricane Katrina, wars among nations. Can we say that God causes those things? Why or why not? Will we say this is a direct sign from God, or should we be hesitant about saying that specifically? I think David gave us some help. I think he gets us online, but can we be certain and say, well, yeah, God did send that hurricane against the folks in New Orleans. It's exactly what they deserve. Is that right? Would you say that? Who would affirm that, by the way? Okay, now. 
everybody's saying no. That's right. Yeah, no is right. All right, Andy, go ahead, and then we'll move on from this. I'll say something, and then we'll go. Well, I was, um, was going to point out, I mean, how many, um, let's go back to the times of the Old Testament, how many famines occurred during that time, how many earthquakes might have occurred during that time, how many locust plagues might have occurred during that time, and how many did God take credit for? Yeah. So unless God tells you he's sending something, you probably shouldn't put words in his mouth. I think that's the strongest point. The reason why the folks in Revelation wouldn't have to doubt is because it's been revealed. I mean, you wouldn't have to guess if this came from God because you've got divine revelation saying this came from God. But here's what we should say. God's sovereign. And everything that happens, happens under his watch. He knows why. He can redeem every cause. We do, we do live in a fallen world. So Genesis 3 forward, there are just some things, as Neil mentioned, that are just going to happen regardless. The goal for us, though, and this goes along with what David said, is just be found on the winning side. If you're in Christ, there's no storm, no war, no hurricane, no famine that can touch where your true treasures lie anyway. And you can be sure God's not against you. God knows how to separate righteous from wicked. You're not going to sink with the worldly ship, or as John likes to call them in Revelation, the inhabitants of the earth. You'll be fine. So you don't have to duck and worry every time they say in the news, this new thing's coming and it's going to kill everybody. All death can do to the Christian is promote them. That's it. And so you can be confident in that. Mike, you get the last comment. And then we got to go. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. Mm -hmm. The idea is, is that they had things that were written before them to learn from, Zechariah, for yeah. example. We have what was written to them to learn from that as well. I think you're right. We can learn. All right, Revelation 6, 5 and 6. Revelation 6. Go ahead. That comfort and hope is the expectation from that learning. Yeah. Thanks. Sorry to cut you off. Revelation 6, 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I saw the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a Daenerys, and a three quarts of barley for a Daenerys, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Okay, what does black represent in the book of Revelation? And famine or scarcity? You know that because it's right here. John tells you this is what's going to happen. The black horse represents scarcity and famine. The picture here is life's basic necessities. I know we would think this is true today, right? This is inflation going crazy in the book of Revelation right here. And so the picture here is life's basic necessities are measured, and they greatly are inflated in their price. It echoes a passage in Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel 4.16. And sometimes I say this is a quote and this echoes. When I say it echoes something, I'm saying it's not a direct quote, but this is in the background of what the author was thinking. So that's what that means. Ezekiel 4.16, a similar thing happened. God's people were in Babylon because of disobedience. And he says, moreover, he said to me, son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. And they will eat bread by weight and with anxiety. And they will drink water by measure and in dismay. So God's people were going to suffer the famine in Ezekiel's day. But in the days of the Roman persecution, it was going to be scarcity that people would suffer in general. What do we know about a Daenerys, and how much is it worth? It's a day's wage. Where did we get that from? Matthew chapter 20 and verse 2. Jesus told a parable. These guys went out to work in the owner's vineyard, and they were each given a day's wage, a Daenerys. So what is all of this about? Um, what does it say in verse number, five, number 6? A quart of wheat for a Daenerys. Well, what does that mean? It means this. Um, Typically, a quart of wheat was enough 
for one person to feed on for a day. So you take a day's wage, you get a quarter of wheat, and you would say, well, that's pretty good, but just think about it. Number one, that's barely getting by. But number two, if you've got a family of four, and you've got a Daenerys, and a quarter of wheat will feed you one person, right? This is a Wendy's four for four. Everybody gets one thing, four, that's it, right? One person, who are you gonna feed, you or your kids? That's all you've got. There's more. John says, and there also is three quarts of barley for a Daenerys. Three quarts of barley was enough for three days for a typical family, for one day. So nobody's getting ahead. God says, I'm going to hit you where it hurts. Rome was the most prosperous nation in its time or empire up to date. And God says he's going to destroy them. The prices for these goods at this point were about 8 to 16 times the average price in the Roman Empire. So families suffering from famine would only be able to have limited quantities of food to feed their families. All right, and then this last part of do not harm the oil and the wine. Yeah, that's the Daenerys. There we go. Yeah, and it typically had, that's one with Domitian's face on it or a recount of it or some, some sort of replica of it. All right, but then it says do not harm the oil and the wine. And we don't have enough time to say a lot about this, but let me just say this. God was not going to totally devastate them. He says, but save some stuff behind. Don't harm the oil and the wine. So luxuries would continue, but the bare necessities would be scarce. What does this tell you about God? Even in a book about judgment and punishment, don't harm the oil and the wine. God's kind of holding back. What does this tell you about God? Compassion. Compassion? Yeah, why would he hold back? Why won't he just take away everything, obliterate everything? And what does this remind you of? Hitting them in their produce and hitting them where it hurts as far as their material <coughs> possessions. <coughs> Who was the first nation that ever felt God's wrath in that way in the Bible? Moses was involved with who? Egypt. That's right, Hannah. And you remember God's plagues on Egypt came in stages. Why? What was the point in that? Trying to get him to repent. Hey, I'm trying not to destroy you. This is from the book of Amos. In chapter 8, he says, I've done all these things, yet you haven't returned to me. I've done all these things, yet you haven't returned to me. Here it is. Don't harm the oil and the wine. I'm not done yet. This isn't the last horse, and I don't want to obliterate you, but if you force my hand, so be it. All right, here's the last horse, and then we'll pick up speech. Seven and eight. He opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked and behold a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with famine, with pestilence and by a wild beast of the earth. Okay. So this horse is associated with Death and Hades in the New Testament. Hades is the realm of the dead. In the Bible, when you read about Hades, it's the realm of the dead. It's not hell. So there's two compartments in Hades. Let's just be easy about it and say first and second floor, okay? People on the first floor, when the judgment comes, they're going down to the basement. It won't be good for them. People on the second floor, they're going to glory with God. Hades is the realm of the dead. Everybody that died went to Hades, whether you were good or bad. It's not about, well, these people went to hell, they were bad. Jesus went to Hades. And I know some people think Hades expired when Jesus rose from the dead, and that might be true. But in Revelation... He's saying death and Hades follow behind this horse. Hades is the realm of the dead. Hell represents what in the book of Revelation? Death. They're given authority, and they're going to exercise that authority with several things. They'll be the sword, the famine, pestilence, and the wild beasts of the earth. And this goes back to Ezekiel 14, 21. They're going to kill and destroy, and punishment's going to be rained down on Rome. If you're reading this, and you're a Christian... Your boss and the guards from the Romans come in and they're persecuting you. What would you be thinking as you read about these first four horses? What would you be thinking? Their, their day's coming. And if I turn back, I'll be swept up in the same destruction. And so the best thing they could do is be faithful. 
Four quick things about the horses. Oh, one more thing. This goes back to the compassion. Why only harm a fourth of the earth? Again, God's being compassionate. Now, the punishments from God are going to intensify as we make our way through the book. But remember these initially. Sometimes people say, well, I can't serve a God that would send somebody to hell for all eternity. I mean, that's just not fair to me. Well, number one, you're not God. And number two, God is always giving people opportunities, chances to repent. God really doesn't want to wipe anybody out. But eventually... We do it to ourselves. And so only a fourth of the earth is going to be harmed by this. It's just a symbolic reference to say God's not going to destroy everybody and everything. All right, what are four quick lessons from the horses? One lesson per horse. Number one, Christians need to be informed. As the world started falling apart around them, they need to remember this was coming from who? Who was opening the seals? Jesus, the Lamb. And the Lamb is on their side. He walks in the midst of the churches. It wasn't to harm them. Number two, God rules the world. The four horses show that God is in control of the world and everything happens on his schedule. I know sometimes we say this. It'll be a crazy week. Different things will happen in the news and somebody will say these words. Our world is out of what? Control. It couldn't be, though. Because he holds all things together. Colossians 1.17. Hebrews 1 and verse 3. He upholds the world by the word of his power. It's very much in control. His control. Doesn't mean God likes everything. There's God's ideal will, which would be everybody do everything I say. But then there's God's circumstantial will where, hey, people aren't doing what I say, but I'm still in control. And I'm going to judge and punish exactly like I want at the right time. Number three, God limits destruction. In this life, if you're a Christian, hold fast. Because whatever punishment or suffering you endure, it only lasts a little while. If you're not a Christian... The suffering you experience in this life, though you might hate it, is as light as your pain and suffering will ever be. There are worse days than it. Habakkuk bent bent God in Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2. In wrath, remember mercy. As if God had to be reminded, he always remembers mercy. He's compassionate and kind, and the four horses, they show God to be that way. And here's number four. God is active in our world. And Neil kind of touched on this last week in his sermon on Sunday night about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit is still present in the life of the Christian. But we just need to remember, God is not, well, no more miraculous. So it's just take your Bible, read, and just do it all yourself and just be a self-made individual. The horses show that God is still very much involved in our world, and um, we shouldn't discount that. All right, the last thing we'll do today is the fifth seal. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. And it says, he opened the fifth seal, and no horse this time. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness that they bore. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves advanced. So the first four horses brought out horses, punishment on the Romans, the fifth seal's opened up, and who do you see? These souls that have been slain under the altar, and they're crying out to God. Who are these people, and what happened to them? They're, they were, they're martyrs, yeah. Ms. Vivian said they're martyrs. They've been killed for their faith. you remember Paul, Romans 8, 37? All day long, we're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. That's not a figure of speech. We use it that way. We're being persecuted. I think that's fine, but they were literally being slaughtered. They're under the altar in heaven, and they're crying out to God for vengeance. They're under the altar, which is just Old Testament imagery for the place where you encounter God in worship. You remember Paul? He said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. His life was an offering to God. That Old Testament terminology of sacrifice in the altar just means that's the Christian life. 
They're under the altar. They were beheaded and they were put there. And what do they want to know? What do these Christians ask? God. What is their question in verse 10? How long before you do what? Avenge their blood on those that dwell on the earth. So they want to know basically when is God going to get their lick back on the Romans that killed them, right? Is it right to pray like that? And what do we do about passages like this in light of pray for your enemies? Matthew 5, 43-48. Pray for all men. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. through God wants everybody to be saved. Or Romans 12. 19 and 21. Beloved, don't avenge. Believe, place the wrath. These folks are in heaven, as it were, and they're crying out to God. They hadn't forgotten what happened to them, by the way. And they're saying, God, when are you going to get back and avenge the people that wronged us? Is that right? Shake or not. Is that right? Some of y'all are scared. It's definitely right because they're in Revelation and God's approving them, right? Should we pray like this? Neil's not and said, yes, and I think we do. I know this makes us uncomfortable, but you're not more religious than God. We think that God is all love, all grace, all mercy, and God wouldn't hurt anybody, but there are genuinely evil people in the world. I can say this quick, Brittany left, but she made me watch Pirates of the Caribbean last night. I don't like the motel, okay? But there is that guy, I forget his name, called Blackbeard's his name. And there's a missionary on the boat, and he comes up trying to convert him, and Blackbeard says to him, you've forgotten one thing. I may just be a bad person, a bad guy. We would like to think, well, nobody in the world's really bad. There aren't really bad people. I told her I didn't like the movie, and I caught, caught that part, and so there she goes. Don't say it. All right. <laughs> There are genuinely bad people in the world. And we should pray prayers like this. It's right to pray these kind of prayers that God would avenge. Now, how do you merge this with Matthew 5 and the other passages? Who are they praying to to deal with their problems? They're praying to God. But the Psalms are filled. And we'll deal more with this next week in a little more depth. But let me just show you one in the New Testament. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4 is famous for Paul's last words. He fought a good fight, he finished the course, and he did what else? He kept the faith. Where is Paul going when he dies? Heaven? Is Paul sure about that? Yes. And yet, before he dies, before he leaves, notice what he says in verse 14 to Timothy. He's thinking about going to heaven. But notice 2 Timothy 4.14. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Paul still wants God to deal with Alexander the coppersmith. Paul, and by the way, Paul wrote Romans 12, 19 through 21. And Paul still thinks it's right for God to punish the wicked. We need to let the Bible teach us how to pray. And there's some practical ways to go about this. We should pray for everybody to come to repentance. But that if they don't, God in his righteous wrath would destroy the wicked and punish them for what they likely deserve. That's a biblical prayer. And if you think, well, I could never pray a prayer like that, we really aren't in tune with the justice of God and we don't hate sin and unrighteousness as much as he does. Think about all of the people in the world who've molested, who've harmed, who've kidnapped. I pray they all repent and suffer justice in this life as they should. But if they don't, it is a right thing to pray with these Christians pray, especially persecution toward them. We need to add this into our prayers. It's the right thing to pray, that God's justice be upheld and poured out on the wicked and the ungodly. We don't get to pick who those people are, and we shouldn't call names and say, this person, but we do need to learn how to pray like these Christians because it's the right thing to do. All right, I think that was the second bell, right? Thanks for your time. Thanks for a good class.